there. Welcome to Totally Fantastic Title. I'm Krista Wallace. So here we are with technical difficulties. This intro is coming to you via Zoom because my little recorder has stopped working and I'm awaiting a return email from the manufacturer. Uh, <laughs> try not to be too concerned. I'm really I'm confident, really truly, I'm fingers crossed. I'm confident that it will get sorted out and I'll be back in business shortly. Eastwise, I hope so, because I have recorded chapter three for next week. But after that, I do not want to have to record the next chapter this way. Now, if you're following me on Twitter or Facebook, you'll know that the audiobook is now available of Gatekeeper's Key on several platforms, which is tremendously exciting. This is ah, my first time. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So many exciting things. It's Thanksgiving this weekend, and my house smells like the pumpkin I'm cooking down for pie. Here's a little thing my family knows about me, as do the audience members of our play, All These People Watching, which my family and I created for the Victoria Fringe a few years ago. I love pie. In fact, when we were writing the play, I insisted that I get a scene where all I do is enter the stage with a plate of pie and stop at center stage and eat a bite and say, I love pie. <laughs> and that, my friends, is the beauty of writing your own stuff. Someday, you will be listening to one of my stories and there will be a scene where some character or other says, I love pie, and you'll say, aha, I know where that comes from. <laughs> okay, that's enough chit-chat. I could talk all day about pie, but I won't subject you to that. Let's get on to chapter two. Gatekeeper's Deception by Krista Wallace Chapter 2 It Would Not Be an Apology A shuffling and a whimper from the bed woke Kean, and he rushed to his wife's side where the pillow and sheets were yet again drenched with her sweat. Help me, Kean cried over his shoulder to the healer. This one is worse. The healer rushed over and scooped a small handful of fresh herbs, tossing them into the steaming dish atop the brazier beside the bed. The fragrance erupted anew, its heady scent drifting upward with the steam, and the healer's apprentice gently squeezed the tiny bellows to waft it across the anguished body of Kean's wife. Alon Mare's body contorted, and a groan like the hinge of a rusty gate was forced from her throat— Kean pressed his cheek against hers, clutched her hand, and whispered urgently into her ear, "'Hold them off, Alon. They are nothing. It is Dregor's minions, that is all.' Her head rocked in torment, knocking into Kean's, and he bit his tongue. He sucked back the taste of blood. Her glassy eyes flashed open, then screwed shut again, blocking out some vision of horror. "'You are Barthelon, Alon Mare. You are stronger than they,' he insisted, willing her to hear him." She shuddered violently, and her body twisted, wringing out pain like water from a cloth. The healer knelt on the bed and rubbed her palms together, gathering warmth and energy before placing them firmly on Alon's chest, just below each shoulder. Kean leaned down to clutch his wife's hand to his cheek. The healer chanted and hummed as the lady thrashed about in pain, struggling as if she were chained to the bedposts. The healer's voice rose to match Alon's volume in a battle to subdue the evil that was consuming her. Conquering it had so far proved impossible. 
The two or three days between episodes provided false hope that her condition was improving, and the subsequent resurgence was that much harder on Kean. The Duke trusted that the healers were doing all they could, but he was very much afraid it was not enough. At last the fit subsided. Alon's cries diminished to moans, whimpers, and finally she slept. Her body ran with sweat that the healer and her apprentice bathed away. Kian Barthelen breathed deeply, letting the tangy aroma of the herbs and the spicy incense do their calming work on him. They just barely masked the sick-room smell that always made him think of old skin. He drifted back from the bed and slumped into the wing-backed armchair. "'How much more can she take, Roman?' he brushed his neglected, steel-colored hair away from his narrow face. The healer barely glanced up from her task. "'Oh, she's a mighty one, my lord. She'll not give up easily.' Her voice betrayed her fatigue, though the strong, sweeping motion of her arms as they work belied her condition. "'Yes, yes, she is,' Kian replied. "'That is why I chose her.' He admired Alon's sword-wielder's body, so muscular and curvaceous even as she lay so ill. One pointed ear peeked out through her dark hair, which was matted and spilled out all over the pillow." Hoarse breaths gusted through parted, cracked lips that had only moments ago been taut with pain. Kian's eye was drawn to the trinket she wore around her neck, a necklace shaped like a serpent. It was a pretty little thing, light blue and jeweled, which he'd noticed immediately upon his return from Shale several weeks ago. The apprentice healer had told Kian it reminded Alon of him, and she had been upset at the suggestion of removing it. The corners of his mouth twitched as Kian pictured her lovely face with that thoughtful smile that had attracted him from the start, that smile instead of the creases of pain she wore of late. The continued gradual swelling of her abdomen was a hopeful sign that all was not lost. The babe fought for life and growth in spite of the odds against him, a true Barthelon. "'Don't forget to breathe, my lord,' Roman said. Startled, he looked over at her just as she smiled and returned her focus to her ministrations. He laughed, a gentle, self-deprecating laugh, and took her advice. He filled his lungs, shaking out his hands, which had been gripping the arms of the chair like the hilt of his greatsword. "'Thank you, Roman. Honestly, my lord, I've enough to occupy me with this one. I don't need another to care for. You'd best be taking care of yourself.' "'You're right, I know,' Kian said wearily, "'but I cannot—' "'He stopped himself. "'I know, my lord,' Roman said, rising to her feet. "'The apprentice held her arm to steady her. "'The healer had exerted a good deal of energy in this latest battle. "'I know you wish to remain with her, "'but I beg of you to eat a hot meal and to sleep, sir. "'She's resting, and Lord Valraker has all your other affairs in hand. "'You trust him, so be at peace for now.' Kian nodded in listless agreement, wondering if he'd ever again feel like the Duke of Three Duchies. He got to his feet, his body leaden, but forced himself to his full seven-foot height. Kian Barthelen was the strongest man in Rydris. Mere fatigue cost him nothing. "'If I am to care for myself,' he said to Roman, "'then so are you. That is not just a suggestion.' He gave a short bow and made the kitchens his destination. Kier took herself to her room where she could open the chest away from curious eyes and remembered the cedar aroma from the first time she'd opened it. 
The same whirr of vibrating air wafted gently at her face. The brushed pewter armband was nestled in the soft protective cushion. With its inlaid green jewel and etched lines, it was a thing of beauty. This time she did not allow her palm to hover over it and feel its unnerving buzz of vibration. That could wait until she knew what the thing was. The information was hidden, as promised, inside the lid beneath the red plush lining. Sitting cross-legged on her bed, Kierre unfolded the slip of parchment. "'A device of deadly protection,' the alchemist had written in a shaky hand, "'will block an attack on the wearer, but gains its power one of two ways, by stealing life force from the wearer, or by taking another nearby life with only minimal control.'" There was a bit more about deflecting attacks and angles and strength, but Kierre did not presently feel equal to the task of studying it. She kept the paper to look at later, but swiftly shut and locked the box, tucking the key and note deeply in her pack. And now what to do with the chest? It was too valuable and dangerous a thing to carry with her at this time, and she was by no means ready to wield it. Better to leave it behind in safety until she had had time to study the instructions which left her puzzling over where to keep it. Acadia, that's who she needed. Kier couldn't keep it in her own room because it might be used by another guest at some point. Acadia would know of a place to safely keep the box. Kier wove through the castle in search of the steward. Yes, of course, Acadia said when Kier found her in her room. She beckoned her to enter. I'll keep it in here. A panel next to the fireplace had a hidden latch. It opened, revealing a small cupboard. I keep my few valuables in here, and it's unlikely someone would look for this in here, don't you think? Yes, I agree. Kier breathed a sigh of relief to have the chest out of her hands. Still, I'll get it from you as soon as I can. It shouldn't be your responsibility. Acadia grimaced up at her as she tucked the chest in the back of the cupboard and closed the door. Believe me, this is the least of my worries. She invited Kier to sit. Acadia was the first woman with whom Kier had had an opportunity to form a friendship since leaving her friend Bianca behind in Hrath. The blonde woman, to Kier's great joy, was too smart and capable to be intimidated by a woman with a sword, and had put Kier at ease almost instantly upon their meeting at the start of Kier's first mission. The unfortunate incident between Kier and Acadia's brother Frederick, the former captain of Shale Castle, was the only hitch, and even that had not succeeded in coming between Kier and the steward. She was a woman of enormous responsibility and capability, and Kier respected her a great deal. The two women had a few pleasant moments to catch up before they were interrupted by the bell at Acadia's door. Acadia sighed, her blue eyes smiling. No one can accuse me of idleness. Follow me and we can still talk. She closed the door behind them. Building a friendship within a smattering of moments was far from easy. Kier kept pace with the blonde woman. Tell me, have you heard from Frederick? The brightness in Acadia's eyes dimmed just slightly, like a thin layer of cloud over the sun. No, I haven't. Her voice contained a sort of determined pride. My brother is out of my life. They hastened down the main staircase. You know something? Until he'd been gone for about two weeks, I had no idea just how much of a negative influence he had on me, like a wicked fairy always whispering in my ear. But he's gone. I have put him behind me. She smiled, her eyes clearing. Still, I am sorry. I never meant for it to go so far. I hope you're not still blaming yourself. He had it coming. All you did was make the truth known. 
They reached the bottom of the staircase. Now I really must get back to work, but one more thing. Acadia rounded the corner with a swish of her dark red skirt and a bright-eyed grin. It's all over the castle that you killed Ronav Malachite. I want to hear the details about that before you leave. The steward rushed off to her office. Kier froze. Blood of Garen. Derry thought he had lost his knighthood because of this, and now people were gossiping about it in all eagerness? Oh, this is not good. She hastened to the meeting room in search of Val. She had to set him straight before another hour passed. There was a guard outside the room. Excuse me, I need to speak to Lord Valraker. He's busy with the prisoner. Prisoner? What in seven hells? What prisoner? I'm not at liberty to speak about it. Fine. Kier spun around and headed toward the stairs. As she took the first few steps up, she heard the door to the room open. The guard stepped aside and let Derry pass. Kier rushed back down. What's going on? Derry closed the gap between them with his long strides. Where have you been? He grabbed her by the arm. She shrugged him off, annoyed. Was he your guardian all of a sudden? With Acadia, not that it's any of your business. He sighed, relieved. There's no need for rudeness. I had no idea where... Well, thank Aiden, you're safe. What are you talking about? Derry spoke in a low voice. There was an explosion in the square. An explosion? Yes, not long after I left you. He looked and sounded haggard. I wasn't right there when it happened, but I went to help, and some people had caught this fellow. He gestured back to the room he had left, so I brought him here. Who is it? I don't know. Did you find a safe place to keep that chest? Did he think she was a half-wit? She waved over at a sideboard against the wall. Sure, I put it down right over the... Oh, no, it's gone! Derry tensed like a wild animal. We've got to... When he saw her expression, he checked himself, frowning. He was clearly biting back some sort of rebuke. Of course I found a safe place for it, Derry. It's locked up someplace real special. He looked relieved and annoyed. Running a hand through his blonde hair, he might have been counting to ten. She recognized that line in his jaw. I don't suppose you saw anything that would help in the investigation. No, why would I? I was too busy getting a magic box to safety under orders from great authority. She gave a passing thought to the tall, pale stranger. Derry opened his mouth, about to give an exasperated retort, but the door to the meeting room opened and both turned. The prisoner emerged, hands behind his back. Two flanking guards marched him to the door that would lead to the cells. The guard who'd been waiting outside followed. The prisoner was not the strange man from the shadows, and her encounter with him was forgotten. Captain Usher Tompkin reported to Valraker and his company in Kean's meeting chamber late in the afternoon. Just as the mayor had begun his speech, a ball of bright white light, like a shimmery crystal ball, had sailed over the heads of the crowd in the square as if it had been tossed. It hovered near the mayor, and many in the crowd tried to back away in alarm. The ball exploded, setting fire to many people's clothing and killing a good many citizens, including the mayor. Several people had seen the man who threw the ball and had handed him over, which was how he had come to be in custody so quickly. He was now undergoing interviews with Piper, the castle wizard, who so far had nothing to add. Valraker, shaken by the news of the mayor's death, said nothing for a moment, and simply stared down at his hand, and appeared surprised that he held a cup of wine. His lips were pressed in a tight line. 
He finally worked them open and with a deep breath thanked Usher for his report. It is rare to apprehend the culprit in a crime like this so speedily. I assure you he will be tried and treated accordingly. I am thankful to hear he has been apprehended, Jeskelin said. He rose and clasped his hands behind his back. I should say at this time that the events of this afternoon have influenced in part my decision to join you on the upcoming mission. This incident has shown me the importance of maintaining the strength of the Southern Alliance. We need Kian, and it follows that we need Alan Mayer and their child. The mage looked over their heads as if addressing an audience in a large council chamber. I am the member of the party with the most experience dealing with wizards. My position on the wisdom of this venture remains unchanged, yet it is my hope that as a mage and a shaman, I will be able to be of some service in the communication with the enigmatic Kami. Kier listened to this speech with bemusement, and when she caught Fennel's eye, the elf gave her a wink. Sure enough, he can't bear to be left out. Once Jeskelin had ceased speaking, the brief silence was broken by a grunt from Janik, who then added, Might as well count me in. Nothing better to do. Jeskelin looked irritated that the dwarf had stolen his thunder. Kier smiled. Why can't you just admit you care as much as the rest of us? The dwarf threw a dirty look at her. She headed to her room. Just as she reached the door to the tower stairs, two young sentries stepped out of the access to the rear corridor. Their eyes lit up with recognition. "'Aren't you the one that killed Ronev Malachite?' one asked, his voice bright with admiration. "'No!' Kier's face flushed, and she slammed the door behind herself. She ran up the stairs. Hero she was not. What had happened in the woods of Nenya had frightened her. She'd made a promise to Derry, a promise which, although it had pained her to speak the words, had made sense at the time. Then deeper emotions had taken control. She ought to have simply captured Ronav, brought him here to shale, let Val give him a fair— Kier stopped on the stairs. She pictured a child in shock over her father, who sat in their front room with a knife through his throat. She pictured Fennel keeling over after trying to stop innocent people from killing each other, then Derry kneeling among the bloody mass that was the bodies of a teenaged girl and her baby. Kier's chest heaved. I wouldn't change a thing. She had killed Ronav in cold blood, and it felt good. She could summon no remorse for what she had done. If anyone deserved to pay the ultimate price, it was Ronav. And in her heart, Kier knew that if anyone, anyone but she herself had carried out the sentence, she would have felt cheated. She might have a confession to make to Valraker, but it would not be an apology. Hunter stoked the fire that warmed neither the air nor the atmosphere of the stone chamber within the mountain he had inherited from Ronav. It was darker, danker than his room in the barracks at Shale Castle. This one is all mine, he thought sardonically. He set a chunk of hemlock on the top of the glowing pile, adjusted it with the poker, and backed up to sit in the armchair. A heartbeat later, he was bolt upright and whirled around, poker poised to strike the person in the chair. You seem to have made yourself quite at home here, Golgothar said. Hunter lowered the poker, swallowing hard to push his heart back down into his chest. Why can't you announce yourself? He used more than a hint of ire. I can, answered the other with an implied shrug. How are things going? 
Hunter let the poker fall with a thud to the braided rug that hid the stone floor. He sat in the other, less comfortable chair before deigning to answer. Do you mean generally, or just since you put me in charge of this rabble? As you wish, the man said, stretching his uncommonly long, black-trousered legs toward the fire. He smelled floral. His pleasant expression said, Do go on. I'm listening. The pleasant expressions worried Hunter more than the unpleasant ones. The new chief glared at the fire rather than aim his frustration at his superior. The men have accepted me as well as can be expected, whatever that means. I suppose they listen to me because you told them to. Then you must encourage them to listen to you on your own merit. I'm working on it. They still have trouble with the fact that I only turned up in time to go with Ronav and the others to Nenya, and I'm the only one who returned. Then you must let them know there was a reason that you remained alive. What, because I'm so much better than they were? Well, aren't you? Hunter considered this. His training and experience certainly placed him far beyond the strengths of the strongest of those men, and without question he was of higher quality than Ronav on a number of levels. "'Do you listen to me because of who I work for?' Golgothar asked, catching Hunter by surprise. "'Or for myself alone?' Hunter's throat suddenly felt like he'd swallowed chalk. "'Actually, you've um, never happened to mention who you work for?' The pale man tilted his head to one side. "'Any ideas?' Hunter could only nod. "'Well?' It was infuriating that Golgothar always demanded answers to questions that Hunter thought rhetorical. Dregor? That's Lord Dregor to you, my good man. Golgothar gave him a delighted grin. Nicely done. I see we have chosen well. Hunter said nothing. Golgothar clapped his hands to the arms of his chair. Well, I just dropped in for a short visit to see how you were faring. Don't let me impede your enjoyment of the evening. He rose, and his tidy black hair brushed the stone ceiling of the chamber. Oh, and by the way, I met someone today, someone whose acquaintance I believe you may have made, Kier Halladin. A pale, shimmering light flickered, and he vanished. Hunter stared before him, blind to the bright firelight. All he saw was her face, glowing in the light of another fire, smiling at him mischievously, her dark green eyes daring him. Then her face as she humiliated him in front of his men, and then... Hunter squeezed his eyes closed, trying to shut out the image. His lord, beloved Kean, possessor of his devotion, that face as it handed down the sentence. Again Hunter relived those last moments as Frederick Hayland, shamed, cast aside, banished from the only life he had known. Hunter had left that persona behind as he rode out of shale. Alone with his misery in his new home, trapped in his new life, he renewed his vow. I will kill her. Valraker wasn't at breakfast. Kier swallowed fruit and wine, but she couldn't swallow the lump of desolation that had formed in the night. She resolved to find him directly after eating and steeled herself for the meeting. She had to come clean and tell him what an ignoble warrior she was, even if it meant that he might not want her to work for him any longer. She took a mouthful of wine, feeling her brows draw together as she wondered what she would do with herself if Valraker dropped her. "'Poor thing,' Janik said, making her jump. "'She can't speak. She's so a quiver over her halfling boyfriend coming along.' 
Kier could muster only a mirthless grimace. She downed the last of her wine and went to Kian's Valrakers while Kian was away, study only to find her way barred by a sentry. The Duke was in a meeting with Piper and the prisoner and wasn't expected to be through any time soon. Later in the day she returned. A different sentry gave the same message. As she stood in the corridor, a maid arrived with a tray of food. The sentry allowed her in, but Kier couldn't even get a peek. The only thing she learned was that the prisoner's name was Chart. She asked the sentry to please let Valraker know she wished to speak to him, though she doubted even he would have that opportunity. By the end of the day, with no luck at getting to speak to the Dark Elf, Kier resigned herself. He had other things on his mind. She didn't need to burden him with yet another problem. Instead, she wrote a long overdue letter. She added a short note for her parents and folded the one inside the other. She addressed the outside of the letter to the Halidans, care of Sendra Flack, General Store, Village of Hreth, Heath Duchy. But the inside letter began, Dear Nix. It was signed Frilirn, which looked like a name. Only three people in all of Rydras would know it translated as student. Moreover, it was written in a language that all but those three would interpret as simple gibberish. The next day, the stable yard was a bevy of grooms, stable hands hustling, and friends waiting to say goodbye. Derry stood with the rest of the company as they checked bags and packs and made ready to leave the luxuries of Shale Castle. Derry recalled one detail he hadn't taken care of yet. He wove through the activity and approached Jeskellen. Jeskellen, will you be my second as usual? Of course, Captain. Turning back, Derry caught a glimpse of Kier's profile. She had certainly heard the exchange, and the muscle in her jaw was clenched. Too bad. She can't have thought he would choose her to be his second. Not now. No, Jaskelin was the most experienced, not to mention the most level-headed. He defied Kier to argue that. Donegal snorted and bobbed his head, reacting to the flurry of excitement, but the groom expertly whispered and calmed him. Derry returned to him and stroked his shoulder soothingly, and the groom continued her work, the warhorse towering over them. Derry combed his fingers through the chestnut's black mane and watched Valraker. The exiled duke wandered among his team, holding saddlebags open while last-minute items were stowed away, or offering pleasant words and even garnering a laugh here and there. He looked tired, yet Derry saw a light of anticipation burning in his eye. The fate of his best friend's wife lay with this motley company, and the sooner they were on their way, the sooner Val could begin counting the days to Alon's recovery. Derry's resolve redoubled. So he had not been knighted yet. Valraker must have his reasons, and he hadn't blamed anyone, not even Kier, for neglecting to bring Ronav to Shale. He'd merely expressed disappointment. Whatever the reason, it was not Derry's place to question him. What did it change? He lived to serve Valraker and was all the more determined that this assignment would be the ultimate service to the Dark Elf. Every action would be performed with Valraker in mind. Derry would be knighted at the end of this mission, or... or... Derry sighed. Who was he kidding? He had never contemplated any other goal, so he could not conceive of quitting this one. Instead, he double-checked the location of his sketchbook in his saddlebag and gave one final tug on each of Donegal's straps. It has taken me altogether too long to thank you all properly for what you did for my people and Nenya. Valraker positioned himself before his emissaries. The yard fell silent. 
Not only did you solve the problem and help them to recover, you have restored their faith in me, which means much in these dark days. I hope I live to see the end of such times and to return to my land and my people. He looked at each of them in turn, the steadiness of his gaze belying the emotion he fought to conceal. Derry bowed his head. I promised you gifts once you returned from Nenya, Val went on. As you know, I haven't much to give, and with Kian away I can only prevail so much upon his kindness, but I managed to come up with these few tidbits. He bent down to a sack at his feet and rummaged around inside it. Derry heard faint clanking of metal and glass. Val drew something out and straightened. He held two six-inch cylinders about the width of his thumb. One was made of a dark reddish wood, and the other was a brownish green, the color of dying leaves of a rose bush. Forge a skeleton, a firebolt rod and a dispel illusions rod, two uses each. He handed them to the mage, who clasped his hands on his chest and bowed his thanks in the traditional Moabi shaman fashion. Val reached into the sack again. He pulled out a vial of dark blue glass and handed it to Janik. Oil of unbreaking. Inside the top is a brush. Smear that stuff on your weapon and it won't break in a normal battle. Lasts about a week, Piper tells me. Can't say how it would stand up against magic, though. Janik's harumph sounded pleased. For Kier, Valraker had a key, similar to the one that locked Kian's study. It was about four inches in length, with a grip through which Kier could stick her little finger. Derry thought it looked like iron, yet when the dark elf handed it to her, her hand reacted as if it had no more weight than a walnut. Val said it would unlock anything and would work four times. She nodded her thanks. Then it was Derry's turn. Your magnificent steed, my captain, has already been newly shod. Derry ran a hand down Donegal's leg and gently squeezed his fetlock until the animal lifted his foot. They're magic, of course, Val went on as Derry scrutinized the shoe. It looked like cast iron. Donegal won't know what came over him. He won't tire as easily, and you'll find an increase in his agility. Derry released the foot and straightened. Thank you, my lord, the captain said and felt the warmth from his master's eyes. That's what's been missing since our return, Derry realized. "'Thank you,' Valriker clarified. "'And for you, Fennel, no, I did not forget our aromatic elf.' <laughs> the others laughed. Derry continued to not understand what was funny about it. Fennel flushed, but stuck his chin up with pride. "'For you I have this,' Val produced from the sack, a hat. Made of soft leather, black, with a narrow brim and dark red band, he passed it to the elf. With your elven footsteps, the enemy won't hear you coming. With that invisibility hat, they won't see you coming. He paused dramatically with an impish half-grin, and Derry leaned forward, waiting for the punchline. Val lifted the sack and whipped out a bright orange feather. And with that fragrant feather, they won't smell you coming either. He stepped over and stuck the feather in the hatband amid gales of laughter. Even Derry smiled. Fennel went an even deeper shade of crimson, but grinned from ear to ear and gave Valraker a grand bow. Finally, Val said, with the one word requesting stillness again, Skimnoddle was not on the last mission, but I didn't want my newest recruit to feel left out. Derry immediately went in search of Kier's reaction to this, but she was expressionless and didn't look his way. I have two arrows here that will explode on impact. Careful now. Val said as the halfling placed them gingerly into his quiver. "'And one more thing,' the dark elf said, pulling out a case. "'In here is a set of jewels.' His voice sounded tired again. 
Cian gave them to Alon upon their engagement. I have been instructed to give them to you as an offering for Kami. Dumbstruck, Derry stared. Surely not. I hope it will help sway the wizard's decision to help us, Val finished. Murmurings of protest sprouted throughout the courtyard. If any of you has another idea, I'd be happy to entertain it. Val handed the little mahogany box to Derry. Silence. Then Fennel spoke up. Our journey will take us near my home at Placatha. Why don't we go there first and ask my mother and father to help? That would be interesting. Derry could not picture a whole family of Fennels. Jaskelin nodded. It would add no more than two or three days to the journey and might just be worthwhile. I would prefer not to sacrifice Alon's jewels if it can be avoided, Derry said. And so it was agreed. Their first destination was Placatha, the front city of the Donan Forest. The travellers made final tightenings of straps and ropes. Skimnoddle put the wrong foot in his pony's stirrup, and a groom patiently prevented him from sitting backwards in the saddle. Derry watched Kier transfer a few items from one saddlebag to another to even things out, and smiled in spite of himself at her look of disgust as she pretended not to watch Skimnoddle struggling to mount his pony. Derry felt a hand on his arm. Val gripped the younger man's hand. Derry. Sir? Aiden guide you. In his lord's eyes, Derry read the urgency of the journey, and he'd invoked the blessing of the goddess of life. He's worried. Kian and Alon were like family to Valraker. The dark elf would be losing a piece of himself if Alon died. Drawing himself up, Derry replied, We'll see you at Barthelon Castle. Golgothar was a clever one, that was certain, the only thing certain about him. He never announced himself, just popped up without warning. The tall, stark man sent ripples of fear through Hunter such as the former captain of the guard had never experienced, not only because the fellow possessed an undefined amount of magical power and could probably cause a man to disappear out of this world with a snap of his fingers, not only because he was lieutenant to the Dark Lord himself, which automatically classed him as dangerously evil in the grand scheme of things, it was because Golgothar was all of these things, combined with a natural charm, intelligence, and a casual sense of humor. That was what frightened Hunter most. The vampiric mage was pure evil and completely at ease with it. Golgothar had a flair for drama and clearly took delight in watching the effect his words and actions had on those beneath him. Hunter still felt the chill of Golgothar's sudden disappearance after handing him his title of chief, and he most definitely had not fully composed himself after the lieutenant had visited him in his chamber and dumped on him that not only was he lieutenant to the Dark Lord, but that he'd met Kier Halladin. Hunter stalked down the shadowy carved stone descent to his chamber inside the mountain— he ought to have just stabbed me in the throat and left me to bleed. Four more days had passed since that last visit, long enough for Ronav's, rather, Hunter's, council of cutthroats to get restless, and just long enough for Hunter's stomach to tighten into a terrific knot of uncertainty. Not nearly long enough for Hunter to adapt to working for the other side. Hunter had just sent the rowdier of his men out to bring in more meat. He had no idea how long they'd have to wait before he'd receive instructions. Not long. He opened his chamber door to see Golgothar sitting in the chair he'd occupied on his previous appearance. How is the new chief doing today? He gave Hunter an irksomely cheerful smile. 
Hunter grimaced at being spoken to like a child, but responded promptly. My men are growing restless, waiting for something to do. The knot gave another good twist before settling into the anticipation of action. Well, I have just the thing for you and your men. Golgothar slapped his knees playfully. I'm not sure if you are acquainted with someone named Kian Barthelin. Frederick said nothing. Golgothar knew full well the answer. If you are, you might also know his wife, Alon Mare. Frederick grunted in reply. If perchance you are acquainted with her, it might interest you to know that she is dreadfully ill, to the point where she just might die, she and the child she carries. Frederick sat down hard. In spite of his self-control, there was no preventing the pallor that took over his face. He could pretend all he liked that he hated Kean, that he had left his former life behind of his own accord, but he could not hide the truth from himself. And Alon Mare was blameless in Frederick's conflict with Kean. He had no reason to have lost his love for her. Die, he pushed the word out hoarsely. Golgothar crossed his legs, and resting one elbow on his knee, tapped his lip with his index finger in a thoughtful fashion, and nodded. Now, here is the concern that my lord Dregor has, this divided loyalty. I assured Dregor, and I am absolutely certain you would back me on this, that your one and only goal is to please our master, is it not? Once again he actually waited for an answer. A stabbing went through Frederick's heart as he thrust out the words, "'Of course!' "'Ah, you see,' Golgothar said, holding out his hands toward Hunter. "'I told him there was nothing to worry about. "'Hunter is the right man for the job,' I told him, and I was right. "'Now, there is the problem. "'Your history as a knight is causing you to display this gallant sense of caring for the lady, "'almost as if you had a fondness for her and her husband.' "'Frederick put a hand to his belly.' I know it isn't really necessary, but I shall, just for the record, remind you that Kian Barthelon, all his friends and all his kin, are the enemy. The enemy, Hunter, do you understand? So any display of care or concern for them is not called for. In fact, it would be decidedly frowned upon by my lord. Hunter dragged a mask of stone across his face. So, here's the thing the terrifyingly friendly evil man said. Right now, some people are on their way to find a cure for the lady's illness. Among them are a few I have no doubt you have met before. Derry Morant, does the name ring a bell? And Kier Halliden. No need to feign the hatred that gripped him at the mention of that name. They are headed for Plicatha, the front city of the Donnan Forest. Their plan is to continue on to the Tower of the Wizard Kami to learn of a cure. You are charged with the duty of stopping them, Golgothar said. Their mission must fail. And the lieutenant abruptly vanished to allow the implications of the instruction to sink in. Frederick just sat. He struggled for two hours to find the strength to appear before his company and explain the new orders to the entire group. With his background, presenting himself as their leader would pose no problem. The tricky part was to muster a tone of authority for a situation in which he had not a shred of eagerness. Eventually, he strode up the dim passageway toward the hall, imagining he was still the captain of the guard at Shale Castle. His confidence had been genuine there. "'All right, you blackguards!' he yelled. Men stopped whatever they were doing, and heads turned his way. "'Leave off scratching yourselves. We have a job!'
So, happy Thanksgiving! I tend to take time fairly frequently to acknowledge all the things I'm thankful for, but certainly at this time of year. And I don't want to sound all saccharine, but I feel like this pandemic has really made me focus on this stuff and appreciate it even more. So, you know, my family and my friends, of course. Good food, good books, good music. The technology that allows me to not only do this podcast and my audiobook, but to have employment during this surreal time. Everything I do is gone virtual. I, I know that's the same for a whole lot of people. So, you know, hooray. Thank goodness for technology. Um, my God, I'm thankful for universal health care. And I really appreciate the federal and provincial governments giving financial assistance to those who need it during this time. You know, my husband's company and all of his 500 plus employees who were suddenly out of work. Um, you know, I just don't know where people would be without that. So I'm really grateful for that. I'm thankful for the right to vote. I won't go on, but Believe me, the list is long, and I think you get what I mean. So while I'm being thankful about stuff, thanks to my family, Matt, David, and Heather, and Maggie. Thanks, David and Sharon. Happy birthday, Da, today. Thank you to the original six. And thanks to you for listening. Now, go be fantastic.